Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Now this is the height of stupidity and of hypocrisy. Here they are betraying an innocent man, condemning an innocent man. But they don't want to walk into Pilate's area because, well, that would defile them and render them unfit to partake of the Passover feast that they were wanting to celebrate. In today's broadcast, we have a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, Jesus Tried. In the first 25 verses of Luke chapter 23, we will be looking at the various trials of Jesus as he was taken before Pilate, then Herod, then Pilate again, and finally on to the final verdict, which was death on the cross. So let's listen in. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be looking at the first 25 verses, title of our study, Jesus Tried. After you find your way to Luke 23, it would be a good idea to go over to John chapter 18. We're going to spend a little bit of time there this morning as well. You can stick your bulletin in it if you want or something or, or you know, at least you, you, uh, you know, no, those are the two places, Luke 23 and uh, John chapter 18. Well, we're looking today at three trials. They're Jesus' civil trials, but we want to back up and, and just give a little bit of background to what's been going on this past week in the life of Jesus. You should know that only a few days earlier, the disciples had to be ecstatic. Jesus rides into the city upon a donkey. The people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Six months earlier, the Lord had told the disciples they were headed to Jerusalem and that he would be handed over there to the chief priests and scribes that he would ultimately be crucified, but he'd rise again the third day. Now, they weren't really processing that he meant all that literally. And if they even had an inkling that he did, they were hoping they were wrong. And now Palm Sunday, they're like, man, we knew it. Whatever he was talking about, well, it wasn't really this because they think this is it. This is the beginning. The people are acknowledging him. The religious leaders are upset about it. They understand this prophecy perfectly to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Well, they understood this was messianic in, in its uh, implications. And, and they came, the religious leaders, and told Jesus, you've got to stop your disciples. Stop them from saying this, he said. If they were to be silenced, the stones themselves would cry out. Well, from that point on, and that's, of course, on the Sunday preceding. It's Palm Sunday. We celebrate it every year. Um, from Monday to Thursday, let me give you a quick rundown on what Jesus was doing. Now, this isn't all that he was doing. This is just some of what he was doing. He cursed the fig tree. He cleansed the temple. He taught three parables, those of the two sons, the wicked vine dressers, and the marriage feast. Each of those have some, well, implications related to God's judgment. 
He dealt with the issue of tribute to Caesar, and that's going to come up again today. So I want you to be aware that the whole question about do we pay taxes to Caesar or not, it's not something that happened six months ago or a year ago or two years ago. It was that very week that this issue came up. And that will be very important as we hear what they have to say about it. He dealt with the Sadducees' foolishness regarding the resurrection as they came with this, this well, what to them was an insurmountable problem related to the resurrection that some gal had married and then her husband died and then you know she married his brother, which was the law. And then he died and married another brother and one after another after another, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? It all seems too complicated and too absurd. So they're basically saying there can't be a resurrection because we can't understand how that would work. Jesus deals with it by saying, you err greatly, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. He dealt with the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. He pronounced woes on the unrepentant, unrighteous religious leaders. He referenced the widow's might and gave signs and warnings that would precede his second coming and kingdom. Another series of parables followed as he talked about the ten virgins, the talents, and the day of judgment. After that point, he has a feast where he's anointed by Mary and betrayed by Judas, who goes out to set the contract with the enemies of Jesus. Then he celebrates the Passover with his disciples. He washes their feet, saying, what I'm doing now you don't understand, but later you will understand. He warns them that one would betray him, that all would forsake him, and that Peter would deny him. Of course, all of that happens. Judas betrays him, all of them forsake him, and Peter denies him. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He exhorts them to prayer and intercedes for him. He's accosted and arrested and, well... Then he was examined, we saw this last time, by Annas, who is the legitimate high priest, but the Romans, because of the power he had and the, the respect he entertained, well, they, they have his son-in-law, Caiaphas, functioning as high priest. And so first examined by Annas, it's an illegal trial, by the way, it happens at night. Again, he goes before Caiaphas, another illegal trial happening at night. These are uh, religious trials. They strike Jesus, uh, though he's been accused but not actually um, condemned or, or found guilty of anything at that point. Um, then he's taken before the full Sanhedrin. This is the ruling body, the, the ultimate court of Israel. So Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, now we catch up and, and that brings us to Friday morning where he's going to stand first before Pilate, then before Herod, then he'll be back before Pilate and the people. And we read in verse 23, or excuse me, chapter 23, verse 1, then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. Here we need to... Go to John 18 for just a moment and we'll come back and look at verse 2. But, but we need to see their mindset as they go from the religious trials to the civil trials. We need to see what they're thinking and why they're bringing him to Pilate. And we read in chapter 18 of John's gospel, verse 28, 
Then they led him from Caiaphas to the praetorium. It was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Now, this is the height of stupidity and of hypocrisy. Here they are betraying an innocent man, condemning an innocent man. But they don't want to walk into Pilate's area because, well, that would defile them and render them unfit to partake of the Passover feast that they were wanting to celebrate. Now, it was a ceremonial defilement. They could deal with it through a series of washings and such. But the real issue is they were defiled inwardly. Jesus had described them earlier as men full of dead men's bones. And that's really what they were. On the outside, they looked alive. Inside, they were absolutely dead spiritually. Well, Pilate goes out to them, says, what accusation do you bring against this man? And you can see the contempt that the religious leaders have for Pilate as they answer saying, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate's contempt is also noted as he says, you take and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Now, you know, back in Nazareth, they had tried to throw him off the cliff. There were other times they tried to stone him. It's not that they didn't ever put anyone to death. It's just they couldn't put anyone on a cross. That was a Roman punishment. And, and of course, Jesus had prophesied he would die on a cross. They had their hearts and minds set on the fact that he would be crucified and that all Israel would consider him a criminal, a, re a rebel, a, a, a troublemaker, and, and worthy of death. Well, back in chapter 23 of Luke, verse 2, then they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, they have to have charges that Pilate will deal with. Their charge against Jesus, their issue with him, is he claimed to be the son of God. And they understood he meant more than a son of God. You know, we're children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God, because we've been born again of his spirit. And, and, and because we've been adopted into the family of God. But Jesus is the only begotten son of God, full of grace and truth. He was always the son of God. He was always in fellowship with the father. In fact, you can't have a father unless you have a son. So the, the very fact that we call him our father says, well, there has to be a son. Jesus was, is, will always be the only begotten son of God of the same essence, the same nature, the same substance, one with the father. So, so these charges are, are meant to put Pilate in a place where he has to deal. They can't come and say, well, He's a blasphemer. He'd go, who cares? Well, he says he's the son of God. Likewise, who cares? And, and so they're saying, well, here's the accusations. They state their case. They bring the charges. The first two, by the way, are flat out lies and they know it. The third is a twist, a distortion of the truth. And we'll see how and why? Well, first accusation, he's perverting, we read, the nation. The word means to corrupt the nation, to turn them away from God. 
Now, this is what psychologists call projection because, because they are guilty of the very thing they're accusing Jesus of. They were perverting the nation. They were corrupting the nation. They were supposed to be leading people into a deeper and fuller experience with God. But they had so distanced themselves from God that it would be hard to find him through them. So perverting the nation, absolutely untrue. Forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, I made mention of it. It was that very week when they had tested him. Do we have to pay taxes to Caesar? They thought if he said yes, the people would say, well, nobody likes paying taxes. And, and if he said no, well, then they could say, well, see, he's an insurrectionist. He's rebellious. But he says, show me the coin whose inscription is it. They said Caesar's. So he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The point is, he never said, don't pay Caesar. He said, give him what's due him and give God what's do him. So both of these charges are just flat out trumped up lies. The third charge that he proclaimed himself to be Christ the King, well, in a sense he did, but, but listen, it was Palm Sunday and they actually, the people had heralded him as I made mention. They were the ones saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were acknowledging him as Christ, the king. And when the leaders came and said, stop him, and he said, no. Well, then he was saying, I accept all this. I, I am affirming exactly what they're saying about me. So his refusal to silence them was an acknowledgement that they were right in heralding him as the Messiah, as the anointed one, as the Savior, as Christ, and as the King of the Jews. Well, Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the King of the Jews? The words are emphatic, and you got to know that Pilate was looking at Jesus and kind of sizing him up. I mean, Pilate was no king, but he lived like a king. Here's the king of kings living like a pauper. Here's the king of kings. He has no entourage because all of his disciples have fled and are in hiding. He's not dressed in a fancy way. He doesn't live in a palace. There's nothing about him that says this is royalty. And so Pilate looks at him and says, you a king? And he answered and said, it is as you say. And Pilate said to the chief priest and crowd, and this will be the first of many times I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Wouldn't it be awesome if those were charges brought against us? Yeah, we get people all excited because we go from town to town preaching the word of God, preaching the gospel. That's what they're saying. He's teaching everywhere he goes. I don't really see any crime in that. But, but there's something else. John again fills in the blanks for us. It's John 18, verse 36. If you're going, you can go. Otherwise, just listen in. Jesus wants Pilate to understand that the fact that he's a king is not really a threat to any other throne. Not yet, anyway. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. This is John 18, 36. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight 
so I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Take note of this. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. I've noticed we do a little, don't we? And it's important to know that the scripture says we're not even to quarrel. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Now, quarreling, fighting, that all comes natural. Not doing that will require we be empowered supernaturally. But even God's enablement will only work if we set our heart to obey him. So he tells us what to do and what not to do. If we choose to do right and choose not to do wrong, we still need his empowerment. But we have to make the choice. So I can excuse and just say, well, I'm argumentative by nature. You know, parents used to argue, so I argue. And well, that, that might be the case. But, but he's saying my servant shouldn't be arguing. My servant shouldn't be fighting. Why? Because we're representing the one who didn't do any of those things. Oh, he told the truth. When judgment was due, he pronounced it. But he spoke the truth in love, motivated by a desire to see people transformed and changed. Well, my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate says to Jesus, verse 37 of John 18, are you a king then? Jesus said, you rightly say I am a king for this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. This is so important. He's telling Pilate, here's how I know who's of the truth. They hear me. In fact, he told his disciples earlier, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They won't follow a stranger. They don't know the voice of strangers. They hear my voice. And it's so essential that we get this. It's why there's no pressure on us as we share the good news, as we share the gospel, as we invite people to study with us. The pressure's not on us because if, if they're listening to the Lord, he's going to be speaking to them and drawing them. That's why we give an invitation at the end of every service. I don't know whose heart God is dealing with and who knows the Lord and who doesn't. But what I do know is, is if you can get past me and you should do your best to, if you can realize that the Lord is trying to talk to you through his word and how ironic that he would use my voice to do it, or Bob Coy, for that matter, you know, or Raul Reese, who you can barely understand. Uh, God uses all sorts of people to preach a simple message, but it's not about the messenger. It's about the message, and it's about the Messiah who sends the messengers. In any case, he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate says to him, what is truth? A more appropriate question since truth personified was standing before him would have been who is truth because Jesus is of course the way the truth and the life but when he'd said this he went out to the Jews and get the irony of this he proclaims the truth Pilate says I find no fault in him at all later he'll qualify that and say no fault in related to these charges but but he's saying I don't see it you're making accusations. I don't get that. I, I don't see it. I don't believe it. So Pilate renders his judgment. And it's interesting what goes down here because 
He pronounces Jesus innocent, and at this point, he should have let him go. I mean, isn't that how a trial works? He's on trial. It's a civil trial. Pilate's the judge. There's no jury. He has absolute jurisdiction. He can make a judgment, and he has. He says, not guilty. So usually you hit the gavel, and the guy walks free. Everybody celebrates. But he says, no, no, this is, this is an issue. This is a problem. And, and because of the intensity of the accusations and the accusers, he's trying to find a way out of taking responsibility for the judgment that, that he needs to make, or really the judgment he's already made. He hears the words Galilee, and this kind of excites him. Back in chapter 23, verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. As soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Herod and Pilate are both in Jerusalem because of the Passover feast. Their job, and they regarded themselves, you know, Herod considers himself some kind of a king. And, and uh, Pilate, you know, he's the governor, but they both are legends in their own mind and, and, you know, an exaggerated sense of their own importance. Basically, from Rome's perspective, they were there to do one thing, keep the peace. Well, two things, keep the peace and collect the taxes. They wanted the tax money and they wanted there to be peace wherever they were ruling over people. So Herod's there because the Passover was always a tense time. Pilate's there because the Passover was always a tense time. And what happens, and it's important to note it, if you read Herod and then you read, well, you read in the early part of the Gospels about Herod, and then you read here about Herod. Later in the book of Acts, you'll read about Herod. It's not talking about the same guy. We actually understand this. It's, it's the whole idea of, well, it's a dynasty. It's a family name. There's this Herod, Herod the Great, and then there's another, and then there's another, and another. Sort of like George Foreman, only he did it all at once. Names all his boys George. So you go and, hey, here's George, this is George, this is George, and this is George. And so, uh, yeah, we used to have a drummer who did that very thing. And, and uh, you know, he named his kid Glenn. And I'm like, oh, Glenn Jr.? He goes, no, my brother's Glenn Jr. And uh, his name's Glenn, his son's name's Glenn, and his son, other son's name Glenn. So, but uh, I think he's just trying to follow after George Foreman. But in any case, what we have here is not the Herod who had... Uh, commanded that all the babies be put to death at the time of Jesus' birth. He's long gone. This is another guy. This is the one who had a relationship with John the Baptist. And we know he actually liked John. He used to have John in and listen to John's preaching. And so it seems that God was at least stirring Herod's heart. He was dealing with him. Now we know things go from bad to worse for him. But it's important to know that John dealt with him as if he could convert, as if he might convert. He didn't look at him and say, there's just no way. And we want to have that kind of a heart and those kind of eyes for people. We want to assume the best about them, that if we give them the gospel, God's word can penetrate their hearts and, and, and that their lives can be changed. We never want to get to the point where we're prejudging the outcome. When we look at the various court trials that Jesus was subjected to, you can't help but see what a farce they all were. 
An interesting perspective on this, however, can be gained by reading about the fall of Satan in Isaiah 14, where it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations! For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now among all the things that Satan desired, the ability to judge would certainly have come along with his exalted throne. And the judgments of the Sanhedrin, and of Herod, and of Pilate are all examples of how Satan's judgment would work. Yet we see God allowing it to happen, and we see God use it to bring about Jesus' crucifixion and bring on victory over sin. No matter how powerful you may think Satan is, God's judgment, God's will, those are always final, and God will always get the last word. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you, and until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.